All right, welcome back to Isolated, but not alone. In this series, we've been talking about the different types of therapies and what therapists see as both the problem as well as how people change. Last couple episodes, we've been specifically talking about the various transgenerational theories. And just remember, transgenerational simply means how things pass from generation to generation. And this week, we're going to focus in on the last of these, which is object relations psychodynamic theory. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. I'm your host, James. I don't know if they call people on podcast hosts, but if that's what they call them, then I am your host, James. If not, I am whatever they do call it, James. So we've been talking about the transgenerational theories, and today we're kind of focusing on the last of those, the object relation psychodynamic theory. I remember when I was in school, and this does tie into what we're talking about, that we had kind of split different professors to kind of teach us about different aspects of the different theories. And we had a very dynamic teacher professor who kind of taught us about the other transgenerational theories, as well as some of the other theories that will be yet to come that we'll discuss in the series. But for this particular theory, we had a different professor teach it, a professor who specifically utilized this system. And they were a very different type of professor. Now, our original professor always talked about um, taffy. They had this entire spiel metaphor about taffy, about learning being like taffy, and that they, as the professor, were kind of creating taffy. And they kind of described that, you know, when taffy is being made, you know, you stretch it, you stretch it, and then you put some sugar on it to make it sweet, and then you stretch it and you stretch it, and that kind of how they described the learning process and metaphor. And this other professor was very, very different. I felt like it was all stretch and no sugar. And that's not to say anything about their teaching ability. They were an excellent professor, an excellent teacher. It was just a very different way of teaching in a very different way that we had to engage our minds in order to learn as students. And what I learned very quickly from the theory, the psychodynamic object relations theory was that it was very complex, that it was very deep and not the type of therapy that I wanted to practice. And I had determined that probably very quickly into the first couple minutes of, of the lecture that this is not necessarily how I want to do therapy. I don't connect very well with this model. 
And so I share that with you, not to say that it's not an excellent model, but to, to share with you that therapists are often drawn based on their perceptions and personalities to different types of therapy. And for me, I was drawn to what they call experiential therapy, which we're going to talk about at a later time, which is very different than this therapy. And ironically, they're very similar. And this therapy informed the therapy that I practice. And so when I was first taught this theory, I had made a decision very quickly on that this is not the type of therapy I'm going to practice. And so with that being said, it is a very good therapy. And I've seen it used by others. And I've seen it used not necessarily holistically as a system, but I've seen the concepts of it developed the therapist's foundation on how they thought about how people were thinking in their heads. And so kind of the big theorist here is James Framo. There's other theorists. And I just want to make there's always other theorists. There's always other folks who help a theory to be successful. But I'm usually only going to take the time to mention kind of one of the big names. And James Framo is it. And so basically, the system sees people as having an image or a perception in their head of other people. But here's where it gets interesting. That perception is not necessarily based, or maybe it's only partially based, on the people who are in the real world, who are really out there. Instead, it's primarily based on people's unresolved issues with their parents. So basically how they see the world, how they relate to others, specifically their spouse, their partners, or their children, is actually based on how they conceptualize their parents when they were children. And so as you can see from just the way I've described that, is that there's probably going to be some problems there. One of those big problems then being that people relate and connect to others based on the perceptions they have of other people that may or may not be alive. And we have problematic relationships that are caused by family members relating to each other based on this internalized imagery and not kind of understanding the results of the unconscious and subconscious material that's distorting that perception. And if you're still listening up until this point, what I said earlier about this being very complex might make a little bit more sense. And one of the popular things that have come from this particular theory that people actually see a lot of jokes about on movies or hear about on the news and things, or maybe has heard about being passed on, is the blankie. You know, that, oh, that's their blankie. And that kind of comes from the fact that they're, they have this object, hence the word object relations, that they are connected to, and the children you're with the blankie. And what this theory sees is that blankie, per se, in that child's hands is some type of like transitional object. And it has like this invested power to provide nurturing as a substitute for a parent. And the child is learning to receive that nurture apart from the parent. Teddy bears, pets, these are all examples of this like transitional object. In my house, it was the binkies, the nooks. I know there's all kinds of names. I don't even, maybe you have like a thousand different names for these objects, but they're the little thing that the kids suck on, right? And 
it was a very interesting war of the belief systems that came together in my household during this time <laughs> over these, you know, five dollars. They're very expensive. Five dollar pieces of plastic that children suck on in order to find nurturing when they're dealing with emotions that they maybe cannot explain at this point. Um, to help them sleep, to help them feel comforted and safe, right? They're safe object. And what I meant by the war of perceptions, the war of belief systems, was that at the time I had my second child and we were really dealing with these binkies and nukes and whatever else they're called in the world. There was a system in the family that came about, specifically to my wife, about... You should get that thing out of their mouths within a couple months. <laughs> you know? And that's an exaggeration, but that's kind of what it felt like. Oh, they, they're four months old. That binky needs to be gone. They need to grow up and they need to be tough and they need to be able to respond to the world right now. And that's a crutch. So get that out of there. The sooner you do it, the better it's going to be for you. And that was one of the systems. But then there was another system that was coming from an opposite direction that was like, Why? It's a temporary object. It's bringing them comfort. It's helping them to feel safe. You know, as they grow, they will eventually get rid of that binky on their own. Right? And maybe as parents, you need to be providing more emotional support, more soothing, as well as learning yourselves how to help children, specifically our children, to self-soothe without those objects, but still allowing those objects until they can develop those abilities and so this really became a battle as we ourselves my wife and i were debating on how to address this do we listen to one side of the family and get rid of that binky nook right out of the way just get it out of there let our children learn and in my mind that connected to a very old philosophy and when i thought about it more and more it always reminded me because I was very uncomfortable with that. I didn't quite know why, so I started to think about it, um, become introspective, as they call it. And I started to think about why is this bother me? Why do I think there's something wrong with this? And I remember a story my mom used to tell about how children in like the 40s and 50s were like immediately taken away from their parents and like swaddled and put in like a room and we see this in hollywood all the time people going down to the little room and they see the baby completely swaddled and completely detached from mom and how that in a sense disconnected that emotional response of the child and that my mom had felt that one of the most important things for a child was to have that immediate intimate physical and emotional connection with mom and she was a school teacher for 30 plus years and she talked about that story every birthday I heard it. And then I heard not only my birth story, but that theory or that philosophy she had on life. And that to me felt very important because in school, I was also learning about how at one point society was very detached from infants and that there's been a big push away from that or moving away from that to more of a bond with mom, that attachment theory, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Attaching with mom, attaching with that parental object. And so the flip side of that was, is, well, it's better for you as parents. It's better for the child. 
They need to learn to grow up. You know, when I, I, I got rid of all my kids' binkies, I remember that being one of the big arguments. Like, I got rid of all my kids' binky at such and such an age. And so in the end, we decided to kind of find a happy medium between complete taking away super early and letting it be around, you know, until they're like 10, you know, which would probably be more on the side of unhealthy if if you're a 10-year-old and, you, and you still have a binky, there might be something going on there. And so that was just one example of, of what I think of when I think of object relations, psychodynamic theory. And I was thinking that in, in the class. And it was a class where you didn't have a lot of time to think about what you were hearing or to get distracted by other thoughts because as soon as you did, you missed some important key information on this theory. And it was a complex theory, so you didn't, you didn't want to miss a lot. So kind of the goal of therapy here is to make those inner constructs and the outer reality. So the, the perceptions you have based on your parents' and your interactions with them when you were a child, and the real world, what's actually going on, congruent to make them connected, right? To understand that there is a disconnect naturally. My spouse is not my mom, right? Even though I may have married somebody like my mom, or maybe married somebody completely opposite of my mom, right? They are not that person, right? And if I find myself related to them and that person, that can cause problems. You know, and that adult children, in a sense, need to make a separation from their parents. They need to, at some point, stop seeing their parents as their parents and somehow develop a peer-based relationship with them as they mature. So in this therapy, some of the things that are interesting is, is breaking some unbreakable rules. So one way this is done is to break some of those early family rules that you had as a child and to understand that sometimes that's okay. There needs to be a loosening of restrictions so that people can get what they need and to avoid keeping people from getting what they need. You know, and this, this theory is very interesting because it's kind of one of the first therapies to see that people often within their family develop perceptions based on their family that they kind of bring in to their current family and there's a huge disconnect. There is a huge disconnect because the person that you're with is not the person that your parents are like or were like. We can't time travel. And I'm going to kind of end here because time travel is very important. If you're a science geek and nerd like me, time travel is cool. Okay. The DeLorean is cool. Right. But in mental health, we don't like time travel. Time travel is considered an unhealthy thing. Now you're like, what do you mean? Getting a DeLorean and going back to the 1980s is a bad thing? Yeah. In your mental health, it is. So let me tell you a little bit about what time travel is from a mental health perspective. Time travel is when you, as the individual, travel back in your memories to the past to dwell on them. Or you jump into the future to dwell on things that have not yet occurred. And the reason why I bring this up here is that a lot of times misunderstandings that have developed from a childhood mind are things that we travel back to in order to interpret our now, to interpret our present, right? And that's problematic. And so I wanted to tie in why I kind of jumped from what we were talking about the time travel. 
But time travel can be much more than just that. That's just how it ties into what we're talking about. But time travel can also be going back and dwelling or ruminating on past negative past events that have been problematic for us. Events that we cannot change, which then create depression or anxiety within us. Or we time travel to the future and we look at all the what ifs. What if, what if, what if, what if. And we create depression or anxiety that way. And so the majority of therapies are at least holistically as mental health to kind of see that the here and now is important, right? To be present where and when you are versus the past that you cannot change or the future that you cannot change because you don't know for the future what's going to happen. And in the past, it's already done. It's already gone. All we have now is in the moment. Now, from a therapist's point of view, some therapies are concerned and focused on the past. Not to get you to time travel per se, though that might be part of the process, but to understand where some of your core values have come from, to see how your perception was developed in this particular theory, is to kind of see some of the magical meanings and old misunderstandings that have been rooted in your childhood, develop those and understand those and maybe define those. But the goal here is not to dwell in that to create anxiety or depression, and if it is created, to to address it in the here and now. So again, thanks for taking your time to listen to my podcast. Now, if you're an object relations psychodynamic genius and you listen to what I said and you're like, man, you are so far off that no wonder why you don't want to practice this therapy, okay? Always shoot me some comments because that is the the unique and fun thing about the field of therapy is that not everybody knows everything. And it's from sharing information, sharing what we believe and what we think in a community that oftentimes helps us to grow, right? By receiving feedback. And in another podcast, I'm going to talk to you about the importance of receiving feedback to help development of a person, as well as what to do when you're getting unwanted, unsolicited feedback. So again, thanks. If you like this, go ahead and share it or like it or do whatever people do on social media to promote it. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, and maybe you are, but you're not alone.